few weeks ago, I spoke about the complex case of the Long Island serial killer. This week, I'd like to talk about the I-70 killer and a possible suspect of both, Neil Falls. Now, whether or not he is a viable suspect, I can't say, but he is a complex individual. In this episode, I'll lay out the I-70 killings with a little background on Neil Falls because he may just be responsible for many killings across America. This is The Weekly Podcast. Sounded like a gunshot. Raytown, Missouri video store owner, Tim Hickman. Put his tool down and listened carefully. The loud pop had come from the business adjacent to his. The store of many colors was the Woodson Village Shopping Center most recent addition. And the six women who owned it had opened its doors only a month before. It was a new age store that sold a, a, a eclectic mix of all natural foods, herbal supplements, water filters, jewelry, and other items. The cinder block wall that separated his store from theirs was enough to buffer most noise, but that firecracker sound was loud. In his gut, he knew what it was, but didn't want to believe it. He stood there perplexed for a moment, straining to hear if he could detect people arguing, screaming, a struggle, or worse, more gunshots. Instead, he heard nothing but an eerie silence. In that brief span of time, one that would affect his life forever, he was indecisive. There was only one right move and plenty of wrong ones that he could, that could cost him his life. After waiting a few more minutes, Hickman opened his front door just as a white male with reddish-brown hair exited the neighboring store that occupied the northeast corner of the strip mall. Without even bothering to look behind him, the man turned his back to Hickman and casually walked the last 20 feet to the end of the building, as if he didn't have a care in the world. When he reached the corner, he turned right towards the intersection of East 63rd Street and Woodson Avenue and disappeared from view. Hickman recognized him. It was the same man he had locked eyes with as he walked in front of his shop just about 15 minutes earlier. He was wearing a gray herringbone or tweed jacket that looked too warm for the weather that day. Inside the store of many colors, Hickman found Sarah Blessing face down in the back room. The 37-year-old married mother of two had been shot execution style in the back of her head. Blood was slowly spilling out of her shoulder-length brunette hair to form a wide pool on the tile floor. When Raytown police officers arrived shortly after Hickman called them, they found a 22 caliber shell casing which their ballistics examiner would later match to five other murders of strip mall and shopping center store clerks that had occurred over the last 30 days in Indiana, Kansas, and Missouri. killer, whose witnesses described as 5 foot 7 to 5 foot 8 inches tall, 
a white male in his late 20s to mid-30s with a medium build and reddish-brown hair, would kickstart a nationwide manhunt supported by the FBI. The mysterious man, who would be christened the I-70 killer a few days following May the 7th, 1992, the date of Blessing's murder, it was a moniker that was only particularly accurate. While four of the victims were murdered near Interstate 70, two others were found dead in their Wichita, Kansas bridal shop located near I-35. Ballistics location, the killer's selection of specialty stores, physical similarities between the victims, the way in which he shot them, and his description by witnesses easily tied all the cases together for investigators. But it was his motive that puzzled them, for although he took money from the cash registers, he sometimes left some behind. April the 8th, Indianapolis. A little before 1 p.m., the manager of a paint store located at 7324 Pendleton Pike looked out his front window and saw a strange man walking toward his business from the I-465, which was just a few hundred yards to the east and three miles north of I-70. He was wearing a green coat and carried a three-foot-long duffel bag. And when he reached the paint store, he circled the building three times before walking next door to a restaurant that had gone out of business. He looked like a hitchhiker, a drifter. The manager then shifted his attention to a customer, but when he looked out a side door to the paint shop at 2 p.m., the man had disappeared. He saw him again a few, a few minutes later, walking back towards I-465, a beltway that encircles Indianapolis, trying to hitch a ride near the on-ramp for the southbound lane which would connect him to I-70. Inside a nearby shoe store, 26-year-old store clerk Robin Falderer, a petite brunette, was working alone. Sometime after 1.30 p.m., the district manager for Payless Shoe Store got no answer when he telephoned Robin's store. That wasn't like her at all. During the 10 months that she had worked at that store, Robin had quickly built a reputation as a reliable employee. He called again and again and again. He called for more than 30 minutes, but no one ever picked up the phone. Robin was found in the back room, face down, with two bullets in the back of her head. Two 22 caliber shell casings were found nearby, and some money was missing from the cash register. April 11th, Wichita, Kansas. Now, we uh, cannot ever name, say the name Wichita without thinking BTK, which this was actually, I think his last killing was in January of 1991, BTK's. And then this started sometime in April of 92. Just a little bit of information there for you. Three days and 685 miles later, Robin Falderer's killer was walking towards a small L-shaped strip mall located in the 4600 block of East Kellogg Drive, north, just a few miles from the branch of Interstate 35. At approximately 6 p.m., he fixed his gaze on a bridal wear and tuxedo rental shop. The lights had just gone off, and one of them had locked the door and turned the work clothes sign around. Inside store owner Patricia Maggarts and her assistant Patricia Trish Smith were closing up for the evening. An unknown male customer had called them earlier to let them know he was on his way to pick up a cumberman, but would arrive a few minutes after the store closed. Now, I know that there's no connection, I mean, obviously, to BTK, but if anybody has ever read up on... Uh, Dennis Rader in the BTK case, they'll know that he loved attention. 
And the attention is what ended up getting him caught. You know, he hadn't killed since 91, but somewhere in 2003, he decides he wants to start talking again. I just wonder how he would have felt with, with the publicity of this case going on, maybe at the time overshadowing, you know, what he had done. But you had both of these kind of cases. His last kill was in January of 91. And then, you know, this picks up sometime in, uh, in April. But uh, actually, we're going to uh, hear a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Thanks. When 22-year-old Trish Smith saw a man pull on the door and rap on the window, she assumed it was the customer who had called ahead, the one looking to purchase the cummerbund. As soon as she opened the door, the short white male with sandy blonde and reddish hair pulled out a fierce-looking pistol and forced them to the back room where he ordered the frightened woman, women to lie down. He promptly shot them both in the head. 32-year-old Maggers was shot twice and died instantly. Smith lay mortally wounded after being shot once. Just like before, he couldn't look his victims in the eyes when he took their lives. After, uh, at about 15, 20 minutes after six, the Cumberbund customer pressed his face against the window saw that the lights were off and no one was around. But since he had called ahead, he opened the door, walked in and called out. Hello? Hello? Seconds later, he was looking down the barrel of an Uzi-style automatic weapon with a short banana clip. The killer, wearing a light brown jacket this time, tried to order him to the back room. I have it in the back. I have them tied up. The I-70 killer allegedly said, I just need you to come in the back so I can get away. But the male customer knew what would happen and was backing up towards the door saying he didn't see anything and it was none of his business. And I reiterate that. Never go. If, if someone orders me at gunpoint, in a parking lot, a store, wherever, get in the back, get in the car. No, no. You shoot me and kill me right here. That's what they're going to have to do, because I'm telling you, that's what they're going to do to you anyway. Smart move on his part. After the two argued some more, the killer finally told him to leave and to tell no one about the event. He did as he was told for about an hour. Around 7.30 p.m., a Wichita police cruiser drove into the quiet parking lot and parked in front of the bridal store. The Cumberbund customer had finally worked up the nerve to call the authorities. The front door was open and the key was in the lock. In the back room, the officer found the women. By then, so much blood had pulled on the floor, he thought they had both been stabbed. Only a small amount of cash had been removed from the register. April 27th, Terry Hawk, Indiana. A former musician, I'm sorry, a former musician, <laughs> oh God, a former guy who played the bass guitar in several bands in the 80s, Michael Mick McCowan, 
ran his mother's store, Sylvia's Ceramics, inside a shopping center near busy South 3rd Street, just half a mile south of the I-70. He had earrings and long hair, which he double braided in the back. Sometime after 2 p.m., the small 40-year-old was pricing some new items when the killer walked in. For some reason, he did not get up right away. With his back to the customer, he was kneeling down, apparently reaching for a small white ceramic house on the lower shelf. The barrel was four inches away from his head when he was shot. The killer took $50 from the cash register as well as McCown's wallet. There was no witnesses and no one heard anything. The ceramic house was found on the floor, just a few inches away, still perfectly intact. I'm assuming that maybe from behind the length of his hair, the stature of the man, him being knelt down, his back to him, he assumed it was a female. May the 3rd in St. Charles. Nancy Kiltzmer. I've butchered that last name. Nancy Kiltzmiller. K-I-T-Z-M-I-L-L-E-R. Wasn't supposed to be working the day she was killed. She was filling in for another employee who wanted the day off. Although she loved being a manager at the Boot Village, a western footwear and clothing store located in Bogey Hills Plaza, the 24-year-old would soon be on on to bigger and better things. She had recently graduated from Oklahoma State University with a degree in geography and was just two weeks away from starting a new job as a cartographer with the Defense Mapping Agency. That Sunday, the slender brunette opened the store at noon. Two and a half hours later, a customer found her body in an office at the back of the store. She had been shot behind the ear. A small amount of cash was missing from the register. The killer didn't have far to escape. I-70 was just a thousand feet to the north. Thirty days of hell. In spring of 1992, the strip malls of Interstate 70 were gripped by terror. First, April 8, 1992, victim, Robin Fuldar, 26-year-old store clerk, working alone in a Payless shoe store when she is shot twice in the back of the head. Witnesses, four, of five, four or five people along that short stretch report seeing the hitchhiker in the area shortly before Robin was killed. A witness living in a house behind the store orders a man off his property a few minutes after the shooting would have occurred. The killer then heads east toward I-465. Also, a witness just before 1 p.m., the manager of a nearby paint store spots the killer who spends 30 to 40 minutes rummaging through his bag and, and staring at a Payless shoe store across the street. He was sitting there talking to himself, giggling. He was either on some kind of drugs or he had mental problems. Uh, then we go to April the 11th, Wichita, Kansas. Victims <clears throat> Patricia Magers and Patricia Smith, 32-year-old store owner Patricia Magers and 22-year-old store assistant Patricia Trish Smith are forced into the back room and shot. They initially mistake the killer for an after-hours customer they are expecting. 
uh, witness the, the late customer has a face-to-face encounter with the killer who attempts to lure him into the back room at gunpoint. The shopper waits an hour before calling the police. Clue, uh, ballistics. Although the MO is identical, there is some confusion over the ballistics. It takes weeks to sort out the mistake and connect the three murders to each other. Then we move to April the 27th, 1992, is the victim Michael McCown. The 40-year-old Michael Mick McCown is working his mother's ceramic store. He is shot from behind as he stalks a low shelf. Clue on that would be ballistics. It would be another 10 days before ballistics tie McCown's death with the others. When they do, investigators realize the killer may have mistaken him for a petite brunette female. Then we go to May 3rd, 1992, and we have the victim Nancy Kiltz-Miller. 24-year-old Nancy Kiltz-Miller is uh, filling in for another employee at Western-themed clothing outlet Boot Village. She is shot behind the ear. A clue we have from that is a woman passing Boot Village sees the suspect and provides police with information that leads to a composite drawing. Then we have May the 7th, 1992, Sarah Blessing. Blessing Co. owned the store Many Colors, a new age shop recently opened in the Woodson Village Shopping Center. The 32-year-old is found face down, shot with a 22 caliber round. A witness, uh, we have a grocery store employee gathering shopping carts, spots the killer walking away from the scene of the crime. We also have more witnesses that see the killer walking east down 59th Street, approximately one mile north of the crime scene and a little more than two miles south of I-70. A clue that we obtained from this is uh, we also get a sketch. So details provided by Tim Hickman enable the police to produce a composite drawing of the suspects. Let's look at the investigation. Despite having a clear description of the killer, the trail soon just ran dry. Shortly after the St. Charles murder of Nancy Kiltz Miller on May the 3rd, investigators from all three states were comparing case notes. Each murder was similar to all the others. Soon, ballistics tests would confirm what they suspected. This was the work of a serial killer. There was no other conclusion to draw. Local homicide detectives looked into the background of each victim and questioned anyone with a connection to each victim, but couldn't come up with a clue, motive, or suspect. In every case, it came down to the fact that there appeared to be no reason somebody would want to kill these people, said a detective in 1992. And then there was the manner in which uh, he killed. This is not a normal type homicide, not even a normal robbery homicide, said a Wichita police captain. These kinds of stories are hardly primary targets for armed robberies. There just wasn't a lot of money. If robbery wasn't the real motive, then there was only one other reason for these senseless murders, just the fact to murder its, you know, the murder itself. But as a serial killer, this guy wasn't even cut from the same cloth as most other serial killers. These were not sex murders with gruesome strangulations or drawn-out knife works as the sadistic killer starred his victims in the eyes as the life drained out of them. The I-70 killer didn't even want to see their faces. He shot them in the back of the head. 
He chose victims smaller than him. He chose low traffic stores, and he was in and out within minutes. This guy was cautious, even a coward maybe. Although an interstate task force of more than 40 officers was formed, there wasn't much to go on. We don't even know what the hell we're looking for, one frustrated Terry Hawk police officer said at the time. The lack of clues was frustrating. He never left fingerprints behind, no hair. None of the victims fought back, which might have you know, scratched his face or torn a button off. No one ever saw him get in a vehicle of any kind. The clues and similarities pointed towards the same guy in all six cases, but they were no closer to identifying him. That didn't stop them from old-fashioned police work, collecting thousands of names from motel registries and showing composite drawings at interstate truck stops, gas stations. Traveling salesmen, truck drivers, and hitchhikers were at the top of their check-those-guys-out list. By the middle of May, the task force dubbed their unidentified suspect the I-70 killer. Their simple sketches were released. His M.O. was explained. All six victims were revealed, detailed, and consolidated into single articles. Soon, the story was getting nationwide attention. And that's when the killer disappeared. Now, the murder weapon was kind of different. Also, in 2012, the investigators in St. Charles released new information in the case with the hope of generating solid new leads. They said it is possible the murder weapon was an Antratech Scorpion, an Uzi-style looking gun as described by one witness, or an Irma work model ET-22, which resembles a German Luger. Although they believe uh, these may have been the weapons used, other makes and models of 22 caliber pistols couldn't be ruled out. The ammunition used was CCI brand. 22 caliber long rifle copper clad lead bullets this ammunition however is popular and 22 caliber weapons are also the most widely used in the United States St. Charles police also revealed that scientific examiners found two substances on the cartridge cases corundum and a red red material consistent with rouge which are used as industrial abrasives or polish the substances are used to grind, buff, and polish a wide variety of things, including guns. It was declared at the time that the killer might have lived or worked somewhere where grinding or polishing was performed. We hope this jogs somebody's memory when they think about that period of time and consider what the guy looked like, said Captain Pat McCarrick. Did the I-70 killer resurface over a year later? Why did it just suddenly stop? That was a question we've asked ourselves hundreds of times over, said Raytown Police Chief Chris Turnbull in October of 92. He may have been killed, he may have, been, he may have committed suicide, he may have been incarcerated somewhere, and we can't rule out that maybe he's just lying low. It's unclear where he was or if something happened to the killer, but it's speculated that he came back, and this time, he may have had a new pistol and a new state to haunt. The Texas Connection. Fort Worth, September the 25th, 10.45 a.m., Saturday morning, store owner Mary Ann Glasscock telephoned a repairman due to come in later to tell him that she was running late. 
When Robert Johnson arrived at the Emporium Antiques around 11.30, a customer standing outside told him no one would answer the door. After looking through the window, trying to call Miss Glasscock from a payphone, Johnson decided to enter the unlocked business only to find her body in a pool of blood. The only clue they could find was a 22 caliber shell casing. There was no witnesses, and the victim's car was still parked out front. They didn't appear to have been a struggle, although the victim's trousers had been pulled down. It was quite possible that this occurred after the shooting took place. Now, Marianne Glasscock, that was September 25th, 93. Then you've got Arlington, November the 1st. Just like Nancy Kiltz Miller, Amy Vess wasn't even supposed to be working on the day she was murdered in the back room of Dancer's Closet, a small shop that catered to children. Sometime between 6.15 and 6.22 p.m., a stranger entered the store and ordered the girl to the back room where he shot her twice. The killer then grabbed $200 in cash from the register and left. When detectives working the I-70 killer case heard about the Arlington murder, they'd connected the case with their own. The details of Vess's murder paralleled theirs with one exception. The markings on the 22 caliber shell casings were different. He had used a new pistol. Arlington police found the similarities interesting, but were less than convinced. Now, that was Amy Vess, November 1st, 1993. Um, then we have, in Houston, January the 15th, the last known possible attack attributed to the I-70 killer broke the pattern as he interacted with Vicki Webb more than he had any victim before. The attack also deviated from the norm in another important way. She survived. At 10 a.m. that Saturday, a short man with long, shaggy blonde hair who looked to be about 50 years old entered Alternative Gift Shop located three-quarters of a mile south of Interstate 69. He looked around for a few minutes, then left, saying he would be back soon. At 11.30, he returned to the quaint little store in the Rice Village Shopping District. The strange man tried to put Vicky at ease by saying he was due to meet his niece soon, and how much she would like her store. He then pointed to a copper picture frame and said he wanted to buy it. After Webb handed him the frame, she turned around to go behind the counter. She was then shot in the back of the neck. The bullet struck her between the second and third vertebrae, chipping a bone that hit her spinal cord, paralyzing her from the neck down. The shooter then jumped over the counter and grabbed about $75 from the cash register. He rolled Webb over and dragged her behind the counter and, as he had done in the Glasscock case, pulled her trousers off. He then put the gun to her forehead and pulled the trigger. Click, a misfire. He found this funny and laughed, but before he could chamber another round, he heard the sound of a car pulling up to the real estate office next door, so left. Stories like that, just it's they're horrible and they're tragic. This poor woman is paralyzed. There's several women killed. But it's just amazing to me how small little things like that happen where that gun misfired, that person pulls up where it saves her life. Uh, Tragedy all over the place in this case. I'm not sure the connection. It sounds very similar as far as the shooting in the back, the shooting, uh, you know, the back of the head or the neck. Uh, It seems like uh, the same killer. Uh, This last case in Houston seems to be a little different. And the fact that he left and come back it seemed to me in the other cases it was more of a drifter or a hitchhiker or somebody that was, you know, a little off kilter a little bit. But it seemed like this guy went in, had a conversation with her, 
left and come back. So I'm not sure on that. Now, they did have a few suspects. Donald Pasco. Uh, Webb had initially picked the 46-year-old out of a uh, photographic lineup, but soon realized that she was mistaken and immediately informed the police. Pasco was quickly let go by the authorities without charge and has never again been linked to any of the crime. And then you've got Jerry Glasscock, recently divorced Marianne's ex-husband. Jerry Glasscock is initially treated as a suspect, but he's quickly ruled out. And then you've got good old Neil Falls. Neil Falls. We all know the Neil Falls story. This is a man that has connections to many, many murders. But he does have a connection to the area. He has a uh, Kansas connection for that time. So basically, you know, the suspect, the suspected serial killer, Neil Falls, obviously we know his fate. He was killed in 2015 in Virginia uh, by an escort during a struggle. Falls had uh, threatened the escort with a gun, but she managed to knock it out of his hands and uh, defended herself with it. Basically, what had happened is he'd come in, he'd, on Backpage, he had found her listings on Backpage. Uh, basically, <clears throat> July the 18th, 2015, Neil Falls was shot and killed by a woman he attempted to attack in her own home. Of course, little did they know what Pandora's box they had opened because inside his trunk, investigators found what had been deemed a serial killer's kill kit plastic tubes, cleaning supplies, trash bags, and a various, uh, various weapons were among these items. Since then, people have been dedicated trying to find out exactly what he was connected to. You know, throughout the years, Falls has been suspected to have been a possible suspect in multiple homicides committed by unknown serial killers throughout the U.S., one of these cases includes the unsolved murders of at least six women across the Midwest who had been working in strip malls along I-70. Investi- investigators believe their suspect is a trucker or possibly even a traveling salesman. Neil Falls' family connections to Kansas, his habit for taking crossroad country trips, and his age at the time of the murder spree has some people looking at Neil Falls as their man. Which, if you look at some of the composites on there, you will see a, a pretty, pretty strong similarity. Um, but basically when he was killed he was shot by uh, in the home of Heather Saul July 18, 2015 and like I said his death opened up an important clue in the unsolved murders of women across the country but ultimately led to a multitude of new questions we still aren't certain how many people Falls may have killed prior to his death nor have we been able to definitely connect him to any crimes aside from the attack of Heather Saul? Basically, uh, Neil Falls had come in with the gun. As soon as she opened the door, uh, she had gotten a, a rake and started to fight him off. And when he, he sat the gun down on the table and went to try to take this rake from her, and she grabbed the gun shooting in behind her, shooting and killing him. Which, kudos to her, man. This dude, like they said, when they went to his trunk, he had a, a, a just a, a, a serial killer's kit. It was, he was ready to roll. So, it was that his first kill? I very seriously doubt it. Very seriously doubt it. Because they, he had worked in, uh, they can, they've got his timeline, they've got him connected in, in Kansas. 
He's from Oregon. Um, when he and I've also got him connected to the Las Vegas area. So he was security at the Hoover Dam. And that's got what's got him connected some some murders out there. Basically, one is uh, Lindsay Harris. She went to Vegas in 2003. Uh, the last anyone seen Lindsay was May 4, 2005. And about this time, this was the same time that Neil Falls was working at the Hoover Dam. And his co-workers would say that he would come to, to work three and four hours early and drive on the Arizona side of the dam and be gone for hours in the desert. So the truth is, nobody knows and probably you, you never will. But they have, I mean, all the right to think if this guy's in the area, then hell, he might be might be part of killing something. But you've got Lindsey Harris in Nevada. You've got... That's an unsolved crime there. And then basically, you know, they've tried to connect him to the Lisk murders. They've tried to connect him to many unsolved murders out there. But the bottom line is he has connections to, while he was in Nevada, he's definitely got connections to the murders of Lindsey Harris and the murder of Jody Brewer. All these are in the 2003 to 2005 area in Vegas. So Neil Falls is definitely a suspect, but how viable of a suspect is he? I don't know. But we have to know that that's not his first killing. I mean, this guy come in knowing, acting like he know, know what he was doing. But he ran up on somebody that was going to fight for her life that wanted to live. So they've got connections with Neil Falls in the Kansas area around the same time of the I-70 killing. They've got connections of Neil Falls in the Vegas area for the two killings that I told you there. Also, he would have abnormal behavior of coming into work two and three and four hours early, going out into the desert on the Arizona side and doing God knows what. Then coming back and basically taking these cross-country trips. Um, and then in 2015, he rolled up on uh, a Backpage Escort. Now, also, too, not going too far down a rabbit hole, you've got several murders of women in the Chillicothe, Ohio area that they've also tried to connect Neil Falls to. So they've, they've taken that name and they've put it with some pretty good-sized cases. You've got the women of Chillicothe, they can put him in that area. Of course, that's around the same area of the woman that actually killed him, not too far away from Chillicothe, Ohio. They can put him in the Kansas area. They can put him in the Nevada area. He's from Oregon. What they're basically saying is they can put him in the same area at the times of these murders, but that's really about it. Alright guys, next week 
our episode's going to basically dive into Neil Falls just a little bit deeper. It's too much information to try to cram into just to say, here, here's a guy, he's a suspect in the I-70, he's a suspect in this, suspect in that. I want to give a whole good solid episode to Neil Falls to break down what uh, evidence they have of his involvement in different murders and different crimes, uh, including the, the Chillicothe, including Nevada, including I-70, Lisk, all of it. I, I think it deserves an episode of its own. So, the aftermath of the I-70 killing, the case may be cold, but it's far from closed. The I-70 serial killer case is still being investigated in Indianapolis, Wichita, Terry Halt, and St. Charles, and Raytown. In each city, investigators receive a handful of new leads every year, and each one is followed up on. The Texas connection to the I-70 serial killer case exists in a gray area created by the lack of a ballistics match, but also by Texas investigators who reject the theory that their cases are connected with those in the Midwest. Although the manner, victim profile, store proximity to an interstate, and the use of a 22 caliber are strikingly similar, they have never publicly stated whether the same gun was used in all three of their cases. Currently, the murder of Marianne Glasscock is the only Texas cold case posted on a police department's website. Over the years, nationally televised shows like America's Most Wanted, Inside Edition, Unsolved Mysteries, and recently Dark Minds have aired episodes profiling the I-70 case. This coupled with local media outlets that continue to keep the story alive by running updates and the enormous amount of attention given to the case over the last 23 years should have been enough to expose the killer, but it hasn't. Over the years, there have been countless theories about what kind of man the I-70 killer was. He's a bitch. What kind of work he did. Why he killed in close proximity to interstates. And why he stopped. All theories have been discussed and rehashed over and over by detectives. Was he a truck driver? A traveling salesman? Or was he a drifter? Someone who existed far below anyone's radar and outside the norms of society? If the old maxim about serial killers is true, that they never stop killing, why did the I-70 killer stop? Arguably twice. Retired Wichita Police Lieutenant Mike Hennessy points out in a 2013 television interview that serial killers can stop themselves. He led the undercover investigation that captured Wichita's BTK killer in 2005. Dennis Rader killed 10 people between 1974 and 1991 and then he stopped, but his narcissism enticed him to resurface in 2004, which eventually led to his arrest. Today, 23 years after his first murder, the I-70 killer would probably be in his 50s, 23 to 25 years on. Police are no closer to catching him, and they can't help but to wonder, is he dead, is he in jail, incapacitated, or did he settle down into regular life? Is he still out there alive? Living among us, he just might be America's most elusive serial killer. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Weekly Podcast. I absolutely 100% love true crime. With that being said, I'm hoping 
to branch out and get in the weeds, get in the trenches, get in the fringes of some different topics. So hopefully within the next few weeks, we're looking to set up some interviews with some drag racers, some street outlaws from the Discovery TV show. We've got maybe some financial planning, some Bitcoin, some different advertisers, marketers, things like that. I also want to speak to, there's a couple of religious folks I want to speak to, a couple of political folks. Not to say that I want to do politics or religion, but I just know those are two topics that can really get under, you know, get some really some good fiery conversation going. So I just want to say thanks for listening. I'm working on it. This is a one-man show with a one-man phone and a one-man closet. Thank you.